I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Everybody needs to have it in front of them, either because you've got a Bible in front of you or you've got an app on your phone, Philippians 3. These guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back if you need one. Then get their attention, and that Bible is marked for you at Philippians 3 so you can follow along. Philippians 3. Sometimes when two people are speaking of a third person that both admire, one might say something like, she's a really great person. And the other might respond with, oh, she's a saint, an absolute saint. Now, the term saint is applied with some intended exaggeration. Because in the popular mind, saints are people of extraordinary accomplishment. It's not a title that's commonly applied to average people. So we have people in the Bible that are given that title, like St. Paul and St. John. And in history, there are people like St. Augustine. We all know that these were people of great accomplishment, and it's no wonder in our minds that we call them saint. But despite the way saint has been used historically to apply to only certain impressive individuals, the truth is that every believer in Jesus Christ could be and is called a saint. In fact, we're called saints in the Bible. In the very first verse of our book, Philippians, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now, when it says that this letter is written to all God's holy people at Philippi, it's literally to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And then at the end of this book, in chapter 4, in verse 21, it says, Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, again, when chapter 4 and verses 21 and 22 say God's people, it's the word for saints. So it's saying, greet all the saints. And it's saying, all the saints here send you greetings. The word that's translated in our NIV that most of you have in front of you as God's people is translate, translated saint in a number of other versions. And it's used over 40 times in the New Testament. And it refers to ordinary, everyday believers. Now that comes as a surprise to us because we've become accustomed to referring to only certain people as saints. In fact, some have a whole process for determining who is to be designated a saint. We heard a lot about all of that back a few years ago when Pope John Paul II went through what is called the canonization process. It's designed to determine if he met the criteria for becoming a saint. So what is that criteria? Well, it includes, one, you have to be dead. But in fact, in the Bible, it's used of living people. Normally, there's a waiting period of five years after one dies before an investigation of his or her life can begin. That was actually waived for John Paul II. So he was on what USA Today called the fast track for sainthood. If the individual led an exemplary life, After investigation, then they were declared to be venerable as part of the process. 
If they were responsible for a miracle after they've died, they are then beatified. Now, how would one be responsible for a miracle after they've died? Well, it's if someone prayed to you and was healed, that would be a miracle attributable to your intercession and therefore worthy of beatification. In the case of John Paul II, the Vatican attributed the healing of a French nun of Parkinson's disease because she had prayed to him for such healing. Then once beatified, you're almost there, but there has to be a second miracle attributed to your intercession before you're canonized. That is, you become a saint. And the Vatican found a woman in Costa Rica who says she was healed of a brain aneurysm after she prayed to John Paul. Now, as you can see, the canonization process, to be a saint, you have to have an impressive spiritual resume. In Philippians chapter 3, we're given one of the most impressive spiritual resumes one could possibly imagine. Yet the one who possessed it considered it actually worthless. Notice the last part of verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons... To put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then after listing all of his impressive accomplishments, Paul, who wrote this, says in verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul was indeed a saint, but he was a saint the same way that anyone else is. Not through an unbiblical canonization process, not due to our own accomplishments, but always and only because of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Today, as we continue our series in the book of Philippians, we're going to see that nothing is required in addition to the work of Jesus for his people. That's why I've titled this message at the top of the outline that you all have. It's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out, follow along. But at the top there, you see the title today is No Additives Required. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here, to be in this moment, to be before you, with your word before us. Help us now, Lord, quiet our, quiet our spirits, uh, help our minds to train in on what you tell us about what Christ has done for us. May it be a blessed sound, a blessed message to your people. May it be one that you are pleased to use to draw people out of the world into yourself in these sacred moments. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in that outline that I trust you have in front of you at this point, I say, first of all, this, that nothing need be added to the work of Christ. Nothing need be added to the work of Christ. And I give some reasons for that. Underneath that, the first of those is this, that those who embrace it, those who embrace the work of Christ are confident. There's nothing that needs to be added to the work of Christ. And those who embrace the work of Christ are confident people. 
Now, in verse one of chapter three, it begins further, my brothers and sisters. Most translations, the King James, New American Standard, even the older New International Version, this newest version that most of you have in front of you came out in 2011, the English Standard Version, most of them say, finally, at the start of verse 1, finally, my brothers and sisters. But of course, these are not Paul's final words. He goes on for another two chapters. Chapters 3 and 4, many people have joked, well, that's because Paul was a preacher, and preachers always say in conclusion, but they really don't mean it. But really, the word means further, or uh, and and in addition. And so he's continuing what he's, parts of what he's been saying. And so the NIV 2011 says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord, verse 1. And the word rejoice has been used already several times in the first two chapters of Philippians. But this is the first time that it's been coupled with the qualifier in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And that phrase in the Lord indicates that the ability to have joy in the midst of our circumstances, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, is all because of the Lord. He is the occasion and he is the source of our ability to rejoice. That whole verse, verse 1, reads, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, what are these same things that he's apparently written about before and now is here writing about again? Well, they are his frequent exhortations to rejoice during affliction, during difficulty. And if you were to go back in chapters 1 and 2, you would see that in, for example, chapter 1 and verse 18, chapter 2 and verse 28, chapter 2 and verse 29. We'll see it again in chapter 4 and verse 1. And so he says, it is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, this same thing saying to rejoice in the Lord. And he says here that it's a a safeguard for you when I do that. That is, there is safety and therefore confidence for all believers in the joy of the Lord. There's confidence, security, and safety for every believer in the joy of the Lord. Now here's why. Because if you find your joy in the Lord, If you find your abiding sense of delight with you all the time, a fruit of the Spirit, you find that joy in the Lord. That means it's a safeguard for you because there is no one and no thing now that can appeal to you that will give you greater pleasure than your Lord. You will not be susceptible to the allurements of the world and of the tempter. Why? Because your greatest joy is found in the Lord. That's why in Nehemiah, the Bible has this line that we use in songs and you've heard repeated. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Finding my joy, finding my fulfillment, finding all that I need in him means that I don't need anything or anyone else. So the famous commentator Matthew Henry said, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies 
and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. The joy of the Lord means I don't have a taste for that because I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If rejoicing in the Lord, then I certainly need not pursue anyone or anything in place of Christ, nor even in addition to Christ. Nothing need be added to the work of Christ. Those who embrace it are confident. I say in your outline as well, though, that those who reject it are condemned. Those who embrace it are confident. But those who reject the work of Christ are condemned. Our passage says, verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Yikes. Well, Paul, just tell us how you feel about these people. Mm. Dogs. Evildoers, mutilators. Who is that? Well, Paul had been fighting off a group called the Judaizers for years. These are professing Jewish Christians who troubled the church by insisting that in order to have a relationship with God, one had to submit to at least some aspects of the law of the Old Testament, in particular to circumcision. That issue was dealt with in the life of the early church in Acts chapter 15. The Bible tells us this. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so delegates uh, from the, the church met, from the churches met, to discuss this matter, and after discussion, they said this, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with the requirement of circumcision. They wrote a letter to the Gentile believers, and they said, This is what we've concluded, that we not burden you with the requirement of circumcision. So they dealt with that, but unfortunately didn't deal with it once and for all, because it kept rearing its head in the life of the first century church. And you see it uh, very directly in the book of Galatians. Paul wrote Philippians. He also wrote Galatians. And in Galatians, in those six chapters, he is dealing with and refuting the doctrine of these Judaizers. And the beginning of his polemic against this false teaching, in chapter 1 of Galatians, he says, If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse and that is that's literally let them be damned so he says there in galatians let them be damned and here in philippians chapter 3 and verse 2 they are dogs and evil doers and mutilators these three epithets are directed toward those who would add to the work of christ and all three of them from verse 2 begin with the same greek letter the The Greek words all begin with the same Greek letter, kappa, our K sound. And so it would have been very arresting for the Philippians to read this. 
But more poignant is that each of these takes some virtue that these false teachers claimed and then uses it against them. So if you look at those three, again, you've got those dogs, you've got evildoers, you've got mutilators. And all of them have to do with something that these false teachers claimed as good about themselves. Paul turns it around and uses it against them. First of all, those dogs. The word for dogs here refers not to domesticated pets like many have in their homes, but instead to scavengers that plagued ancient cities. These scavenging dogs roamed in packs. They fed on garbage and occasionally attacked humans. They were despised, and dog was frequently used as a derogatory term. In fact, Jews in biblical times commonly referred with contempt to Gentile dogs. In effect, he's saying, beware of those who call others dogs, but are in reality dogs themselves. He takes something that they use to brag about, we're not that, and to say, in fact, you are that. Now, the description is harsh, but it's fitting. One commentator has said, are dogs unclean and filthy? So are false teachers. Are dogs vicious and dangerous and to be avoided? Yes, and so are the false teachers. And so are all those who teach salvation by works. Now we have become kinder and gentler. In part, it's not necessarily a virtue on our part, our part this kinder and gentler approach we take. Because it comes in part because we've downplayed the importance of truth and the danger of Christian or so-called Christian teachers who deny that truth. We have all taken the kind of Rodney King approach to Christianity. Can't we just all get along? But you see, Paul was concerned most about truth. And the basis of our unity is to be upon truth. And he did not shrink back from calling those who denied the truth what they are. Scripture teaches that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And those who teach otherwise are, Jesus said this, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. When Paul, who wrote Philippians, spent three years in the city of Ephesus ministering there after his three years there, after his time was done. In his farewell address to them, he said, among other things, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and they will distort the truth. This issue of truth, falsehood, and being aware and discerning about it was of paramount importance in the early church. And it should be to the 21st century church. This is why one of the qualifications for a pastor is that a pastor be able to embrace the truth, know the truth, and then refute those who would deny it. Titus chapter 1 says, A pastor must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it, as it has been taught so that he can refute those who oppose it. Why? Here's why. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, 
especially those of the circumcision group. The people who say, you've got to add this to the work of Christ. Especially those of the circumcision group, they must be silenced. So those dogs, those who reject the work of Christ as complete, are condemned. Condemned as those dogs, but also as evildoers in verse 2. And this is taking something that they took pride in and turning it around on them. You see, because they took pride in keeping the works of the law. We keep the works of the law, said they, and you must as well. And here Paul says they are in fact doing evil. Even if in fact they do good things, they do not do them by the power of the Holy Spirit and do not do them for the glory of God. And so your claim to be doing these good works and doing the works of the law is fallacious. You're actually evildoers in denying the work of Christ and its complete sufficiency. And then thirdly, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. And that refers to circumcision. Some translations say here, beware of the false circumcision. Circumcision is what distinguished Jews from Gentiles, so much so that Jews often were referred to as simply the circumcision. So in Ephesians chapter 2, we already saw it in Titus chapter 1, the circumcision group. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it says they call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. And they, the Jews, referred to Gentiles as the uncircumcised. And so Paul addresses them in Ephesians 2. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. Now the word that's translated mutilators is a play on the word for circumcision. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Speaking of the prophets of the false god Baal. And here's what it says about those false gods. It says they shouted and they slashed themselves. They mutilated themselves until their blood flowed. So here Paul is saying, if you insist that for someone to have and maintain a relationship with God, they must submit to circumcision, submit to the law, then you are like these false prophets of Baal, mutilating the flesh, And to no end, in fact, to a very evil end. And so New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says circumcision, their greatest source of pride, is interpreted by the Apostle Paul as mutilation, a sure sign that they have no part in God's people at all. You see, friends, circumcision or any external ritual or ceremony is meaningless if it does not reflect a transformed heart. That was always the case even when circumcision was a requirement under the law of Moses. It still required a transformed heart. And those who teach otherwise are not praiseworthy religious people who are just doing their best to please God. That's what we think. The Bible says they are purveyors, now hear this, of demonic doctrines. Demonic doctrines. Yikes. But 1 Timothy 4 says this, Some will abandon the faith and follow things taught by demons, including abstaining from certain foods. That abstaining from certain foods idea is taking you back under the law. 
Believers are to avoid those who teach these kinds of things. Second Timothy have nothing to do with such people. Now, the Judaizers of New Testament times were those who taught that we're saved by keeping the law of Moses. We are not saved by works of any kind, including those of the law. But we're also now hear this not obligated to the law of Moses for sanctification either. Do you hear this, friends? Not only is it not necessary to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. It's not necessary to observe the law of Moses in order to stay saved, to be sanctified. Neither one. And do you know why? Because the law is done in Jesus. The law is no more in Jesus. And that's why when the Judaizers taught their false doctrine to the Galatian churches, Paul wrote that polemic against them. And in chapter 3, he said this, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And why wouldn't you finish by means of the flesh? Why don't you have to keep the law of Moses? <laughs> because in Romans 10, here's what it says. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Now hear this. There are people. I know of people right now. Right now. Who grew up in a Bible-believing church like this one. Who've gotten caught up in teaching that says we've got to observe the feasts of the law of Moses. We've got to pursue the diet of the law of Moses. Friends, you and they need to see that for the false doctrine that it is. We are not under the law any longer. The Bible declares that very clearly, and we are not only not under some parts of it, we are not under any parts of it. It is ended. And it is ended because the work of Christ has completed it and fulfilled it and done away with it. When we sang this morning, it is well with my soul. And we sang, my sin is nailed to the cross. That's a reflection of a passage from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Where Paul, who wrote that as well, says that God has taken the writing of ordinances that stood against us and was opposed to us. And he has nailed it to the cross. He paid the debt that we owed to the law completely. And to say that I or you are under any aspect of that law is to say that what Jesus did was incomplete. That's why the Bible takes it so seriously and why it's such a false doctrine. Nothing need be added to the work of Christ. Those who embrace it have reason for confidence. Those who reject it are condemned I say in your outline, those who live it are genuine. Those who live it are genuine. Verse 3. It is we who are the circumcision, 
We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. We, Paul includes himself, and his Philippian readers are the circumcision, and by extension us. It does not mean that Christians have become Jews, and as some say, the church has now become Israel. But rather that circumcision had no spiritual value if not accompanied by a renewed heart. Those whom God has given that heart are right before him, quite apart from the physical act of circumcision. And this was true even in the Old Testament when the law of Moses was in effect. The prophet Jeremiah, I, God says through him, I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. The whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. And because we are, have renewed hearts, we can render true service to God. Verse 3 says it is we who serve God by His Spirit. We've been given spiritual life. Our hearts have been made alive. We have the Holy Spirit so we can serve God truly, not in mere formality. The word that's translated serving in verse 3 is a word that's used in your New Testament for worship. It's we who can worship God by His Spirit, but it's a word for worship through service. Those who have spiritual life and therefore have God's spirit are able to worship God in every act of service they perform, whatever it is and wherever it is. And Jesus hinted at this this change that was coming with the beginning of the new dispensation of the of the church, moving away from the law of Moses and the centrality of the, the temple and the sacrifices that went on there. Remember, he met with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And he began to give her the good news about himself, which always starts with the bad news that we're sinners and you need me as your savior. He starts to point out her sin and she does what sinners normally do. She tries to change the subject. And so she says to him, our ancestors worshiped on Mount Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, there's a time coming when you will worship the Father neither on Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem. Because true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. And they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The kinds of worshipers the Father seeks and has found in Christians. Because he has given us his spirit. So it's only believers who can genuinely worship God at all. A non-believer, someone who is not born again, cannot worship. So therefore, our worship services, like today, are not designed for unbelievers. That's one huge difference between this church and so much of what's going on in churchianity today. Worship is not designed for people who can't do it. It can only be done by believers Unbelievers are always welcome, but it's not designed for unbelievers. And it's we then who have the spirit who can genuinely serve and worship God. And verse three says, it is we who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. That is because we know that our salvation is not of works, but it's been solely and completely secured by Christ Jesus. We take no glory to ourselves and boast of nothing about ourselves. God has designed our salvation to be all of him so that 
Only he receives the praise. The prophet Jeremiah again, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. That's quoted in your New Testament. First Corinthians chapter one. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Nothing need be added to the work of Christ. To do so, friends, suggests that the work of Christ was somehow incomplete and it steals the glory that belongs to God alone. There are many versions of legalism. In its classic form, it's the belief that what you do is what gains your relationship with God. But there are a number of subspecies as well, all of them having in common the idea that what you get is because of what you do. Most of the TV preachers peddle the so-called prosperity gospel that says if you follow the right formula, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Self-help books and gurus flood the media. So much so that many Christians think that Ben Franklin's aphorism, God helps those who help themselves, is actually a verse in the Bible. It's not. And God doesn't help those who help themselves. Hear this. God helps the helpless. And therefore, God gets all the glory. Nothing need be added to the work of Christ, I say in your outline. Secondly, not only nothing need be added, nothing can be added. I mean, we've seen that people try to add, but the truth is it's all to no avail. All of those efforts come to naught. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ. If there were anything at all that could be added to what Christ has done in his perfect life and his substitutionary death, then the man who wrote the book of Philippians had the credentials to do it. Paul's background in legalistic Judaism was so impressive. He was so meticulous in his religious observance that he could say in verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul knew that his past, before being converted to Christ, could surpass the performance of anyone else in all of Judaism. I have more than everybody, he says. Could surpass them all. Let's look at how so. His resume starts as an infant, verse 5 says circumcised on the eighth day, which shows what I say next in the outline. That it cannot be enhanced. The work of Christ cannot be enhanced by privilege. It cannot be enhanced by privilege. By that, I mean privileges of birth, privileges of inheritance. Paul, or as was his given Jewish name, Saul, was circumcised by his parents seven days after his birth in strict compliance with the covenant that God made with Abraham. God said to Abraham, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. The fact that he was circumcised as a child meant that he was not a convert to Judaism, what's called a proselyte. He was not someone who came to it later in life. Paul was Saul was an insider at birth. And he was also, according to verse 5, of the people of Israel. This means his ancestry goes back to Jacob, 
who you may remember his his name was changed by God to Israel. So not only was Paul not a proselyte, his parents weren't proselytes either. Racially, he was a pure blooded Israelite. So one commentator says Israel and Israelite were inside terms by which Jews referred to their own nation. Others might call them Jews, but only they called themselves the children of Israel. Paul was a total insider. In addition to being circumcised on the eighth day, being of the people of Israel, the passage says in verse five, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob of Israel. And he was the only one, the only son born in the promised land. Kent Hughes says of the tribe of Benjamin, it was the only tribe to remain faithful to Judah and the house of David after the death of David's son, King Solomon. The tribe of Benjamin went into exile with the tribe of Judah and returned from exile with Judah to resettle Jerusalem. Benjamin remained at the core of spirituality. King Saul, Israel's first king, was a Benjaminite. And the apostle Paul's given name was Saul. Paul's heritage could easily have given rise to insider pride. It says as well that his heritage included that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That indicates at least that he spoke both Hebrew and Aramaic when so many other Jews at that time knew only Greek. Paul prayed and read the scriptures in Hebrew. Paul's parents made sure he had the best education in Jerusalem. In his testimony before the Jewish religious leaders in Acts chapter 22, Paul said, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. Here's a guy who was a private school insider. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ. It cannot be enhanced by privileges of inheritance or birth. And I say in your outline, it cannot be enhanced by achievement. By achievement. The end of verse 5, Paul in giving this resume says, In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. In New Testament times, the Pharisees were the most impressive and respected group in Israel. According to the historian Josephus, they numbered about 6,000, and they were sort of an elite denomination within Israel. The word Pharisee means separated one. The Pharisees distanced themselves from persons considered unclean, and they were scandalized by Jesus' willingness to associate with them. As a Pharisee, Paul voluntarily chose To keep the hundreds of commandments of the oral law, not just the the written law, but the oral law that explained it and had all kinds of rules on how you keep it. These were passed on from generation to generation. Paul was a brilliant, meticulous Pharisee who took a backseat to no one when it came to legalistic devotion. And his commitment extended even to being willing to kill for the false cause that he embraced. Verse 6 says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. The first time we meet Paul in Scripture, at that time known as Saul, is at the execution of a Christian. One of the first deacons of the first church in Jerusalem, Stephen, 
is stoned in Acts chapter 7. And the Bible says they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul who approved of their killing him. When Jesus appeared to Saul on his way to Damascus to persecute still more Christians, (laughs) Jesus mentioned his criminal activity. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The energy with which Saul pursued Christians made him a sort of hero among his people. Paul's credentials included his personal achievements as a Pharisee, as a persecutor of the church. And last in verse 6, he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He doesn't say sinless, but he says faultless. The Pharisees assumed that a faithful Israelite could keep the 613 commandments of the law because the law provided rituals and procedures to receive forgiveness and purification. Paul's conduct was faultless in the sense that he lived a model way of life in accordance with how the Pharisees interpreted the law and what it meant to keep it. And this is how those who knew him saw him, completely faultless as it relates to keeping the law. Again, New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says, Paul speaks of his faultlessness as an objective fact, as clear and true as his circumcision or his membership in the tribe of Benjamin and his persecution of the church. Paul was faultless under the law in a category by himself. But hear this, friends, it meant nothing. All of those privileges of birth and all of those achievements mean nothing in terms of your relationship with God. The only thing that matters is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law, not partly, not sort of. He was sinless. He was perfect. He fulfilled all righteousness. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. He died on the cross for sins, not that he committed, but that we have committed. And in his life and in his death, everything you need is complete in him. So you can have confidence. You need nothing else. You should want nothing and no one else. But if you reject it, please understand, friends, as good a person as you may be and as good a person as you think you are, you weren't as good as Paul. And you still ain't good enough. He wasn't good enough. It meant nothing and means nothing in terms of your relationship with God. You need and must have Jesus Christ. Now in closing, how do you get that? You realize what we've been talking about. You ain't good enough. You're a sinner. You fall short. I fall short. But Jesus Christ did what you could not do. 
He was sinless. And because of his sinless life, his death on the cross was acceptable to God the Father on our behalf. So he paid the penalty for our sin. And that's why my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Because Jesus could do that. And he did. So repent. I'm no longer going to trust in my own righteousness, my own goodness. I'm going to trust completely on Jesus. Now I'm going to go his way and follow him as my Lord and master. Now is your opportunity to receive him as your savior and bow your heart before him as your Lord. We're going to bow and pray as we do, dear Christian. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who is our salvation and nothing need be or can be added to it. I say as your take home truth, Christ is all we need. Christ is all we need. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for, in your word, the example of your work that you have done in and through your people. We thank you today for the example of the great Apostle Paul. We thank you for the humility that you engendered within him because he saw himself in relation to you as a sinner infinitely separated from you. Without God and without hope, Unless you intervene and move upon his heart as you miraculously did. And Lord, that same thing is true of every person who comes into this world. We are all born separated from you with a sin nature. And you did that miracle for me at age 19, moving upon my heart and giving me spiritual life. And I embrace Jesus and nothing has been the same. Lord, those of us in whom and for whom you have done this in this room. We praise you and we give our lives to you. I ask you, Lord Jesus, cause your spirit to move on the hearts of some who entered this room not knowing you and your good news. In thinking that a relationship with you is doing the best they can and when they stand before you, hopefully their good will outweigh their bad and you'll let them into heaven. I pray that they've been disabused of that false notion. That you will accept nothing less than perfection. And none of us can achieve it. But we thank you that Jesus did. So Lord, we ask you to move on their hearts so they invite Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And they bow before him as the Lord that he is. We will give you the praise and the honor. For you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.